If you have your Bibles, please open to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We are going to go over the entire chapter this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun and is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them. For a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many lives, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better than miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and his name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place? All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does this wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and striving after wind. Whatever exists has already been named and has known what man is. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase futility, then what is the advantage of a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow, for who can tell a man will be after him under the sun? Lord, as we open up your word to study it, May it go beyond just an intellectual exercise for us. May it transform our worldview and thinking so that we can live in such a way that is most honoring and pleasing to you. Be with us this morning as we look into your word, that it conforms us to love you more and be more like your son. Thank you for the time that we have. In your son's precious name, amen. Ambition and drive is often overrides it overrides reason when it comes to building and constructions. In 27 AD in Rome, there was a situation there where the Emperor Tiberius decided to close down all of the Colosseums and stadiums because he put this ban on all the gladiator games. And at the time there was a very opportunistic entrepreneur decided, hey, if the government is not going to let me have my gladiator games, and that there's obviously a need and a craving to watch these games, I'm going to build my own stadium. I'm going to build it, and I'm going to invite people in so that we can move on with our lives, and obviously for him, this person named Attilius make a lot of money since he is basically finding a market for, this, for these gladiator games. The stadium was built, and it was designed to seat about 50,000 people, and it was planned and constructed, in relatively speaking, in record time. And when it was finished during opening nights, he invited all the people in Rome to come and, and enjoy these gladiator games. And when the people got there, it was pretty much exactly what is expected when you build a place so quickly, it collapsed. And about 20,000 people died that day. And when people were sent to figure out why it collapsed, it was found that the stadium was built by very cheap wood. And it was built on a terrible foundation. If ambition and drive 
often overrides reason when it comes to building constructions than it is more so when it comes to living a life without the Lord. A person can believe that their life is filled with meaning and purpose if they are just ambitious enough, if they're just driven enough to reach their goals and to get whatever they want in life, only to soon be overrided with the reality that all things are meaningless without God, that everything is vanity without the Lord. So many people believe that as long as they achieve or possess certain things, that that's when they will have their best life now. Solomon here is like that inspector just looking back and seeing all the rubble in his own life and he concludes that you can't really build your life with poor materials or build it on a very terrible foundation. He looked at his own life, he crashed and burned and he realizes I need to warn my sons so that they do not fall into the same temptation. He hopes that you and I and the reader and listener wouldn't waste your life pursuing the things in this world that does not offer satisfaction. He wants to warn you before you make a mess of your life to make sure that you live life under the fear of the Lord. Solomon is trying to tell you that if you want to build your life on these cheap materials or on a terrible foundation, then it is doomed from the offset. This book, Ecclesiastes, is written by Solomon. It is implied heavily in the very first verse of this book. He is known as the preacher here, the the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And that's very unique because he's the only king after David that had this united monarchy. He was a very special and unique individual where God has met with him twice. And on his second encounter, God grants him one wish. What do you desire? What do you want, Solomon? And instead of asking for wealth or a long life, he asks for wisdom so he can govern God's people well. And that pleased the Lord, and, that, and God gave him that. And for a while, he did really well. He brought Israel to the heights I've never seen before. People from all over the world wanted to go and, and learn and just hear Solomon talk about life and his insights into the world. People all over the world began to go to Israel and begin to worship Yahweh because they realized that the God of Solomon is the one true God. But we know that doesn't last long. He begins to build things for himself, particularly a house. They spend decades building, a lot longer than the house of the Lord. And he also accumulated wealth and a whole bunch of women that eventually turned his heart away from the Lord. And this book is a lot of ways, it's, his, it's, a, it's a testimony of his life, of all the things he've learned, and really a lot of ways it's this book of his own repentance. He realizes that all that he's acquired in life, all the experience he went through, was completely meaningless without the Lord. Solomon here is trying to teach his son that if you want to have your best life now, Here's the type of material that you should not use, and here's some of the materials that you should use, which is going to be the outline for us this morning. We're going to start with the negative and go to the positive. We're going to start with, uh, if you want to build your best life now, you don't want to use cheap materials. You don't want to use cheap materials. If you want to build your best life now, you must not use cheap materials. That's our first point. Don't build your life off cheap materials. Let's look at verse 1 in chapter 6. There is an evil which I have seen under sun and is prevalent among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. And God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. The first cheap material that you do not want to use to build your life on is money. Solomon says that there is this evil that he notices under the sun, and that is, again, he's speaking from his own experience. He looks in the mirror, he sees himself, and he concludes that happiness does not come from wealth. He believes that the, per, the reason why that is is because God is the person that's preventing him from enjoying the riches of his life. The truth that Solomon learned is that wealth is never as great or enjoyable, or as satisfying as it first appears. 
You notice even in verse 2, he states that he lacks nothing. He actually has all that he desires in his life, but God withholds enjoyment from him. Instead, as a foreigner gets to enjoy it. This isn't the first time he's said this. He's said this before, and he's seen often... He's seen it often because this is his life as a king. And this portion here in chapter 6 is unique because it is in the middle of our English Bibles, but it's also the middle of this entire sermon that he, he preached to his people. And this is, in a lot of ways, a summary of all the things that he said before. So he's already said this. He said that, that you cannot be satisfied with wealth. Solomon's trying to teach all of us and the listeners that are listening that you do not want to be so disillusioned to think that wealth is going to make you happy. God will never will do whatever means to keep you from enjoying wealth without him. And sometimes he will put a scandal in your life that you can't that makes you just lose everything the moment you acquire all the wealth. It can also mean a certain amount of stress in your life the moment you because you can't manage the wealth that is that you've inherited or that you received. It could also mean that God may even afflict your health with some kind of suffering so that you aren't able to enjoy the wealth that you have. Whatever and however the means may be, God can stop you from enjoying your wealth. Money will let you down because that's not how God intended money to be. Money is designed as a means to survive. It's not for you to worship. Now, if God is the one that prevents you from enjoying money, that the implication is also that the opposite is also true. That the reason why you enjoy life, the reason why you're able to enjoy the wealth that you have is because God gave you the ability to do so. The question is why? Why would God do something like that? Why would God keep me from enjoying wealth? And it's because our God does not want his people to be idolaters. To enjoy any gift without worshiping God is idolatry, and idolatry in any level will never satisfy the human heart. Enjoying life without God is merely entertainment, and like all entertainment, eventually it will come to an end. But enjoying your wealth with God is at the center of everything in your life will enrich your wealth. You must see that having wealth and enjoying wealth are both a grace from our God. Enjoy all that God has given you, and whether you have a lot of money or very little, enjoy it knowing that these are all from the Lord. The Lord has blessed you with it. Money is only satisfying if it is tied to our Creator. Now look at the next thing he mentions here. Family. Verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many lives, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper bear, then I say better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and it goes in obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. Solomon presents another cheap material that you do not want to build your life on, and that is family. Family and is, is a great thing to have. It could bring a tremendous amount of joy and happiness. Having a large family, especially in that context, means that you're blessed by the Lord. You have a lot of people in your life. But yet Solomon is also saying that having a large family will not give you lasting satisfaction. On a side note, when you read this, you might think to yourself, who can actually father a hundred children? I mean, he's obviously exaggerating here, right? But then at the same time, you think about Solomon he might actually have fathered a hundred kids because he had a thousand wives and concubines. So he, he, for himself, might actually be possible. For most of us, though, what we want is probably just maybe one or two kids. And we don't want a thousand spouses. We just want maybe one spouse. And Solomon is essentially saying is that you will not find satisfaction in your family. Because if you do that, you're, you, you will eventually be disappointed. Now, obviously, the Bible speaks highly of family and children. Uh, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And, and when it comes to children, that, it, that the Lord opens the womb and children are a blessing from the Lord. So family is a good thing. It's a great thing. But it does not satisfy. In fact, family is often the place where some of the biggest heartbreak and heartache comes from. Some of the greatest pain that you'll ever feel in your life 
involves your family, whether it's conflict with one another or if someone in your family is sick and is dying, your whole family feels it. And if you, even if you're lucky enough to have zero conflict with all, your, your family, you'll find that eventually that they will die, and that which will bring more grief. Look at middle verse 3. However many they be, uh, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say better the miscarriage than he. You know, we, all, we don't often think about our own burials because we don't often like to think about our own death. But even in our day and age, when we think, when we reach a certain point where we start thinking about our own death, we can write down exactly what we want our funeral to be. If we want fireworks, then there'll be fireworks. If we want to be uh, cremated and scattered into the ocean, then people will do that. But back in the day, during the ancient Near East, not having someone giving you a proper burial is a sign that nobody loves you, that nobody cares about you, that no one laments your loss. No one cared about the fact that you are dead. Solomon says, what's the point of having a hundred kids when not even one of them cares enough about you to bury you? And if that's the case, Solomon says at the end of verse 3, better the miscarriage than he. He's not speaking of the hundred kids being miscarried. He's speaking about himself. It's better that he didn't even come into existence if he realizes that all the kids that he fathered does not even care about him. This is a very dark saying in the book of Ecclesiastes and probably one of the darkest sayings in the book and this is in the entire Bible. And this is not one of those verses that I'll say you should make this your life verse. Like don't tattoo it onto yourself because that's, you know, there are other verses in the entire Bible. Pick, one, pick, pick another verse. It would seem that Solomon is saying that's better for him to miscarry, to be miscarried than to father a hundred kids and not one of them even cares about him. Again, it's heartbreaking. Imagine you have a hundred kids and you care for them, but at the very end, they do not care for you. There isn't that love that's returned. Solomon thinks that it's better to not even know that pain. It's better that he doesn't even exist so that he doesn't have to think about that reality. Verse four, for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity and its name is covered in obscurity. Now in the ancient Near East, giving a child giving a, a name to a child before they're born is not something that they do. You know, when, you know, when, when my wife was pregnant with our kids, we would you know, test out some names. It was like, oh, hi, so-and-so. And eventually we landed on Ruby, so I would go to my wife's belly and just start talking to Ruby. And same with Nicholas. I just said, like, oh, hi there, I'm your dad. And that's probably why they're so terrified of me. <laughs> but you understand, in our day and age, we're used to doing that. But back then, in the ancient, ancient Near East, it was not so. They did not name their kids before they were born because there's always the possibility that a child can be stillborn or miscarried. There's no certainty of the, the life of the child. So they never give the name until they see the baby born and living. And the reason why they don't is because in case the child is miscarried or stillborn, then it gives the parents an opportunity to distance themselves from the child, to move on quicker. It is though the child has never existed. One translation of this verse here says, For it, the child comes without meaning. It deports in darkness, and in darkness is named, is shrouded. This is why it's so unique in the Gospels when, in the beginning of Luke and Matthew, when both John the Baptist and Jesus were named the angel said, you're going to name this child John, or you're going to name this child Jesus. And that's, 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 that's different for the Jewish mind, because why would you do that? Because that gives assurance to them that this child that you have is going to live. There is going to be that forerunner, and there is going to be the coming of the Messiah. God's plan will come into play, and that's why it's so miraculous. Not just the fact that it was virgin birth, but the Lord is going to sustain the child in the womb until he, he comes into, until it comes into the world. And also why in the contrast with David, when he lost his child, the child was never named. It just said that when he died, he loses the child. That the child cannot return to him, but he can go to the child one day. Again, this, this type of idea of naming your child is designed to spare the grief of the parents, or potential grief. Solomon is saying that there is no permanence, even in something as good as family. 
So don't place your entire hope on it. Psalm isn't suggesting that you live like a hermit by yourself because he said in chapter 4, verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift them up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So again, Solomon isn't saying be by yourself because that is better. He's just saying do not place your entire trust and build your life around your family. God did not design your family to give you that kind of ultimate, ultimate satisfaction and joy. But some people pursue a family as if that's the case. Some people pursue marriage thinking that, that if they get married, then they're going to be complete in life. Or some people that are married wish that if they, if they have a child or a large family, then they will be completed. They will feel complete in life. If you place your faith in your own family, you are in a world of hurt. Your children or spouse or whoever you're, you place, whoever family member that you place your trust in will not do the job in satisfying you because that is not their responsibility. Their job is not to make you complete because that's only found in our Lord. Family is only satisfying if it's tied to your creator. Look at the next thing that Solomon mentions, a long life. Going back to verse 3, he says, If a man follows a hundred children and lives many years, and then it goes down uh, to verse 6, even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. The cheap, the third cheap material that you don't want to build your life on is having a long life. Our culture, especially in this pandemic, is obsessed with trying to stay healthy. You know, if I just, if I just get through this health crisis or if I get through this pandemic, then for sure on the other side of it, that's where happiness is going to be. That's where I'm going to find joy. And some things that finding a, having a long life will make them happy, but having a longer life does not mean that your life is happier. Because if that's true, if, if being old or living long is what is going to make you happy, then the happiest place on earth will be nursing homes. But sadly, that's not the case, right? You don't go to a nursing home to find happiness. You go to a nursing home to, because you have someone that you care about that's inside, and you want to try and make them happy. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't care for the elderly people or that it's, it's bad to become old. I'm just saying that if you try to live a long life without the Lord, then it's completely meaningless. If, you are to, if you're an elderly person, and for all of the rest of you, you will be an elderly person, you must see that living a long life is only worth it if you live with God at the center. There are things in life that, that it just gets better over time. If you have a nice leather jacket, uh, leather actually is one of those things that ages well over time. If it can, if you if you keep it well and lasts long enough, it becomes soft. And, and the really the difference between a good leather and a terrible leather, a leather that actually can hold itself, and a leather that just falls apart, is whether or not the leather is real. If the leather is real, then it can keep warm for forever or until it gets completely destroyed. Uh, but in any normal circumstances, that leather will, can actually be preserved, and it's good. But a fake leather will just end up being useless. And it's the same thing with your age. A real believer will age in such a way uh, that, if they're, especially if they're close to the Lord, that they, and they age with the Lord, that they become softer in the sense that they become more compassionate, gracious, wise, and caring. You can provide a warmth for other people no matter how much time has passed. But you can only do that if you age well with a genuine relationship with the Lord. Because if you don't age, if you age without the Lord, then you become useless and just fall apart. If your faith isn't genuine and you age, then you become useless for the kingdom because you live for yourself and not for the Lord. Or I think the most obvious example is a grape. Right? A grape can be used to become a very sweet and a very great wine, or it can shrivel like a raisin. And age can be like that. It can be like a grape. Depending on how you're used, you can be pressed and refined and age well so that you can become the sweet wine. 
And what's the difference between a wine and a raisin, really? Because is, is did the Lord use you in your entire life? If the Lord used you, then you can actually become a fine wine. And if it's age well, then even a glass of your wisdom will make people cheerful and glad. Now, there isn't anything wrong with raisins. I happen to like raisins. I like to eat them with cereal and with my kids. But understand that raisins does not have the same value as wine. No one collects and have a cellar full of raisins. You don't collect them. They're not a collector's item. They don't increase in value over time. Again, it's not saying that there's anything wrong with it. It just, it just quickly comes and goes. But with the wine, there's this increase in longevity. There's this value that comes with it. But it only comes if you age well. And that's the same with some of you. If you want to, young people or old people, if you walk closely with the Lord, then the Lord can use you in such a unique way that you become sweet to those that you encounter. Solomon's trying to say that having a long life is not something to be desired in and of itself. Don't cling to this life. For us, this will never be our best life now, especially if you do it without the Lord, but rather this is the worst life in relative to the eternity that we will have in Christ. We understand that this life will only be good and be, there's only a relatively speaking better life, but the best has yet to come. This life is filled with pain and suffering, betrayal, divorce, miscarriage, war, famine, disease, and all kinds of calamities in the world. The next life is where you will find no tears because the curse will finally be lifted. It is better to leave this world sooner than to live forever in this fallen state. Staying healthy to try to live longer is a meaningless goal. Now, I'm not saying hurt yourself or try to kill yourself or anything like that, but just enjoy the life that God has given you, however long or short your life may be. Solomon is trying to argue that life is enjoyed not by circumstance, but contentment with all that God has given you in this life. A person that lives a long life or even miscarried, they all end up in the same place, and that is the grave. A long life is completely meaningless if it is not tied to our creator. But yet look at the next thing that, he, that Solomon mentions, the next terrible or poor material that you can build your life on, and that is work. Verse 7, all a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. The fourth cheap material that you don't want to build your life on is work. Solomon's basically saying that the reason why you eat is so that you can work. And the reason why you work is so that you can eat. Why? It's because you get hungry. And when you get hungry, you want to eat. And in order to get food, you need to work. So you just, the cycle just constantly repeats itself. Again, the Bible speaks very highly of work. And the work is a good thing. But work is hard because of the fall. And not only that, but our perspective on work is distorted the moment after the fall. For some, people have these extremes. Some are super lazy and they have a hard time to will themselves to work. And others are so obsessed with their work that they just completely idolize it. And both extremes are not satisfying and gives any permanent joy. Your work is designed for the particular purpose. And if, if you miss it, if you don't use it right, then all you're really doing is just eating so you can work and working so you can eat. Again, it's never satisfying because you're fueled by what you want and what you want doesn't have any limits. Basically just wasting your life. You're chasing after the wind. A person eats so they can add days to their lives. What's the point in eating so much to add days to your life if they do not have life in their days? What good is it for a person to eat so they can just add days to their life if they don't add life to their days? I've known people that have survived the communist revolution in China. This time period was known as the Great Leap Forward, and that's the time when a whole bunch of Chinese Communist Party decided to just kill capitalism. They just decided to go to all the farmers, all the wealthy people, and take everything from them so that they can make it equal for everyone. And the result of that was that millions of people have died, and I was able to talk with one of these people, and I asked them, what was it like? What was it like to live through all of that? And he said it was extremely difficult. It was very hard. And I remember asking, like, hey, so what was, you know, what was your aspirations back then when you were as a kid growing up in this world? What did you want to be when you grew up with these prospects? 
And, and he, his response was very profound because it wasn't the things that you and I would think about. You know, we think about, oh, what are we going to do when we grow up or what kind of job we want or what kind of person we want to marry. We think in those terms. But back then, in that particular time, the only thing that they think about all revolved around food. What is the next meal? When is the next meal? Where can I get the next meal? Those people in that era, they weren't living. They were just merely existing. Solomon isn't saying that you can't find joy in work or in food. He actually encourages it in the book of Ecclesiastes, but he's just saying that you cannot find absolute happiness in work, especially if you're just controlled by your appetite. I mean, if you're only controlled by your appetite, what's the difference between you and an animal? Right? Humans are unique because they can actually enjoy food and praise God for it. If you ever watch those like Discovery, Animal Kingdom things, animals do not kill another animal and think, hey, let me yelp this and see if this is good meat, or think, oh, maybe get, let me get some salt and pepper and season this, or should I cook this? They're not thinking those terms. They're just, they're just moved by their appetites and they just eat whatever they want. And that's all they do. They just eat and then they rest and then they work by finding food and then just the cycle goes over and over again. You, as a believer, should enjoy the life that God has given you. But don't bank on your work. If you ever visit someone that's dying in the hospital, you'll notice that there's a few things that they never talk about. They're never talking about, oh, I wish I could work a little bit more. Or even the things that the work can provide, like, oh, I wish I bought that car, or I bought that video game, or I bought that watch, or I bought that house. It's never about work or the things that money can buy. It is always about some sort of experience that they wish they've done. I wish I did skydiving. I wish I did this. I wish I did that. I wish I was able to enjoy my life more. Or, is it, or has something to do with relationships. I wish my relationship with my kids were better. I wish I can see my parents one more time. I wish I can, can be with uh, the rest of my family. It's never about work. And this is particularly true for some of you that are, are obsessed with your work. You say, there's no, I don't, I'm not going to fellowship after church because I need to go to work. I'm not going to go to some midweek Bible study because I need to work. I'm not going to spend time with my family because I need to work. I'm not going to spend time enjoying anything in life because of work. I'm not going to pray to the Lord because I have work to do. I'm not going to read the Bible because of work. And Solomon here is saying that don't build your life with something as cheap as work. Yes, work hard but also just enjoy the life that God has given you. Be content with what you have. Work is absolutely meaningless if it is not tied to your creator. Look at the last cheap material that that Psalm talks about, wisdom, verse 8. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? The eyes see... What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and striving after wind. Now this is strange coming from the wisest man in the world. Like he's the one that has all the knowledge. He's the one that has has all the wisdom. He's saying, don't try to acquire the things that I know. Which is obviously hypocritical. But yet he is the one that has all the money, all the wisdom. He's saying, he's, he's reached the end point. He's realized, don't do it. This is not worth it. Now, ask yourself, do you remember the valedictorian in your high school? I know for some of you recent high school grads, you might remember it. But unless you are the valedictorian, you most likely you will not remember who the valedictorian is. So you ask the older people, well, when you were in high school 20, 30, 40 years ago, who was he and what, what do you know about him now? Over time, even the smartest person is going to be forgotten. Nobody cares in, in eternity how smart you are. Yeah, this is a, this, this, I'm not trying to encourage you students to like drop out of school. Like, oh, I'm going to be stupid now. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that you just cannot build your life around what you know. You can't build your life just trying to acquire knowledge and wisdom because ultimately those things will not last. Why doesn't learning matter? Because everybody dies. The smart kid and the dumb kid no matter where they stand in terms of the academic stand, eventually both will have to lie down in a grave. Again, this isn't a point to say be lazy. That's not what Solomon's trying to say. But he's just saying that you just can't find meaning and satisfaction in acquiring knowledge. Verse 9, 
what the eye sees better than what the soul desires, this idea that, that you need to be content. Don't waste your life trying to pursue what you think would be better. You know, some young people and even some of the older people might think, if I just travel and see the world and experience this or that, then my mind will be expanded and I could have more insight into the world and the inner workings of humanity. Not realizing that you spend all of these things and it's useless. Some consistently seek to try to learn and get more degrees so that they get, so they think they could reach some sort of higher, higher plane of existing existence and understanding, but it won't happen. Learning without God in mind is a mindless task. Wisdom only works well if it leads you to the one who is all wise, which is our one true God. Your education is meaningless if it is not tied to your creator. So money, family, long life, work, and wisdom, all of these things are cheap materials or terrible foundations to build your life on. You cannot expect to find meaning in any of these things because God will stop you from idolizing these things. If you want any of these areas to matter, they must all be tied to God. Solomon's trying to spare you from a wasted life and a life filled with regrets. If you try to build your life around or on these things, your life will eventually crumble. And you may wonder, how can I tie all of these things back to God? How can I tie it back to my creator? What about things like money? How can I tie my money back to the Lord? Well, you need to give to those that are in need. You see someone that needs money, you're willing to share with those that need it. Or you provide and you support missionaries. You find, out what, uh, you find out ways in which you can save and serve, but you don't think about those things so much. You just see it and, and you bless the Lord. And you give thanks to him for, for providing you with what you need. Don't trust in money, but trust the Lord who gave you every single cent that you have. You want to use your money to advance God's purposes, not to build your own kingdom, not to feel comfortable. You want to use it for the glory of God. What about my family? How can I use my family for the glory of God? Will you make your home centered around the scriptures? You see your life and your family as almost like a mini church that you devote yourself in learning and finding ways to apply scripture into your own life. And you as a parent need to understand that you have this privilege and responsibility to teach the next generation of believers. Your family is a mission field and is an opportunity for you to serve someone beyond yourself. It's like a little picture of what heaven is going to be like. At the end of scripture, we see that heaven is a place where all the people that are believers are gathered as one family with our Lord. And your family here on earth right now, this moment, is just a small sliver of that. What about a long life? How can I use my long life for the glory of God? Will you go out all out with all the things that the life that God has given you? Be thankful for the life that you have. Invest in eternal things. Make your life count. Live today to its fullest because you are not promised tomorrow. What about work? How can I tie my work back to the Lord? Well, one of the most obvious things that you can do that the scripture commands us is you don't complain at work. You work hard. You help others. You see your workplace as a mission field that God has placed you there uniquely to represent him in the company that you're in. You want to be thankful for whatever that you get paid for. You want to be a good employee or employer that shows you or show that your people that are around you that who you work for primarily is not a paycheck. That is not your master, but you work for the one true God, and that is our true master, Jesus Christ. Don't work to simply acquire wealth because that is completely vain. What about wisdom? How did I learn things for the glory of God? Well, first, you actually have to try to learn things. You actually have to pursue wisdom, try to learn things, but not just learn for the sake of learning, but you have to find ways to apply it into your life. This should be for you college students that are thinking about what class I should choose this coming fall. Don't choose Chicana studies if you're a science major. They're not related. Find something that you can actually use that's related to how the Lord can use you down the line. Choose something that you can learn so that you can be effective in, the, in God's hands. Find things to learn so you, the Lord can use you in a very unique way in this world. Don't waste your mind. If you try to build your life with any of these things without the Lord, you will not be able to enjoy life. But there is a better way. 
there is a better foundation, there is a better material that you can use to build your best life now. And that is our Lord, which is our second point. The only solid foundation or the best material, the only material that you can use to build your best life now is if God is the center, that you live for him. Look at verse 10 to 12. Whatever exists has already been named and is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. Solomon makes this very stark contrast between the feudal world and how great our God is in these last few verses. You want to build your life with God and on the foundation that is God. Solomon speaks of how God is the owner of everyone and everything. And I think that he's actually referencing back to the garden here when he uses this word named. This is the same word that was used back in Genesis when God created the heavens. That was the first thing that he made. He called it heaven. And when he made Adam, he named it Adam. And in the ancient Near East, to name something means that you have authority over it. He named the heavens, he named the earth, he named everything, he named Adam as a way of saying that he is an authority over all of humanity. It says here that at the end of verse 10, Therefore, he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. Because God is the creator. God is all-powerful. There's no way that you can dispute with someone that is stronger than you. No one can truly win someone or, or, or beat someone that is stronger than them. You know, sometimes when I wrestle with my son, I only let him win. You know, he, doesn't, he can't actually take me out. He, I mean, he's tried lunging at me, and I only pretend that I'm hurt, and I roll on the ground saying, oh, I'll tap out, tap out. But if I go all out and wrestle against my son, that's called child abuse. <laughs> There's no way that he can win. And in the same way, we think that we can wrestle against God and expect to win. You know, sometimes in our day and age, we think we want to, uh, you know, cheer for the little guy. But you think you might be even thinking, well, didn't David take out Goliath? He was this pretty shepherd boy with red hair, with a little slingshot. He was able to destroy Goliath. No, that story is not about David versus Goliath. Rather, it's Goliath versus God. And God used a little shepherd boy with a little rock to take out this Goliath to show the world that God cannot be trifled with. That you cannot insult God and, and try to take God's glory away from him and get away with it. Why is this here? Why is Solomon saying this? It's to remind you that everything that, that we are all in the realm of God, he is the one that sets the terms. Since God is the only God, the winner is already set. Humanity can't win against God. No matter how much people want to think that they can deny him or the reality that God has made everything, God will always have the final word. No one can dispute God and expect to win. No one is capable to go toe-to-toe with God and expect to win. No one is able to contend with God and expect to win. The point is this, that humans can't win because God is greater and he always will be. And this is just the way for Solomon to try to say, accept this as your reality. Let God have his way. Just throw in the towel, wave the white flag, especially when it's against God. You just can't win. Just give up. Just let God have his way. This should give us great confidence, especially in a time like this, when there seems to be this rising current of persecution and hatred towards Christianity and just how broken this world is. We don't need to worry because we're on the winning team. You know, every four years there's an election year and then whatever party wins, half the country is depressed for either four to eight years. But you know, with us, we don't need to have that type of fear because God always wins. He wins so that we can all rejoice. We can, we're on the winning team. You can rejoice knowing because we, it's revealed in his word. God has already revealed in, in scripture what will happen. So we don't need to worry about what people's threats are to us because they can't take away our Savior. They can take away all the things in this life, but in relative eternity, this is nothing. It's just a drop in the bucket. Verse 11, For there are many words which increase futility, but then, but what then is the advantage to a man? Solomon reveals something about the power of words, and then that there is actually no power at all in human words. 
Human words are limited and it doesn't last long. There's no real eternal consequences. So why worry so much about what people are saying about this or that? In a world that's so obsessed with having our voice heard, it's humbling. this is a humbling reminder that your words really doesn't matter. It's only increasing in uselessness. No word from the world can have eternal power or any eternal significance. All the words that man has ever spoken is empty. I googled how many tweets there are in a day just to see what it's like. Apparently, there are 350,000 tweets per minute. There are 500 million tweets a day. And there are 200 billion tweets a year. No matter how many tweets that you have and is logged into the, the overlord's database, eventually everyone will forget what you said. This means for the Christian, we can always find solace and peace in the Lord because God's words are eternal. God promised that not one word or jot or tittle from his word is going to go unfulfilled. But not only that, but Jesus said he was going to build his church and not even Hades can swallow it up. And not only that, but he said the church is considered the pillar of truth. So if you put all of these verses together, you understand that God's word and God's people in the church will persevere because God has said so. All of this is because God is sovereign over everything. God's word will ultimately have final say. God wins. And this is the promise that God has given to us, his people, that we have assurance to live in this life with joy and happiness because we are in God's world and we're submissive to God's word. Verse 12, for who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? Solomon does this amazing thing here at the very end. that He actually gives these type of rhetorical questions, expecting no one to answer, but the answer is actually knitted in the question itself. The reality is that no one knows what is good except for God himself. Right? No one in this world can know what's best for a man. And we hear this all the time, and you, you need to do this, you need to do that. If you want to preserve your health, you want to stay healthy, do this. But no one really knows, objectively. No matter how much the science has to say, no one knows who decides life and death. There's no absolute certainty. No one can say that with definitive. Only God can say that. He's the only one that can say, this is what's actually good for you. He created this world. He created the parameters. He knows what is good for you. And if you try to break away from those parameters, if you try to break away from God's standards, life is going to be hard for you. But if you obey the Lord or you do what God commands, you will find that your life will be filled with joy and blessing. God knows what is good for man during the few years that he has here on this earth. Psalm says, he will spend them like a shadow. But we can tell a man what will be better, what will be after him under the sun? Again, another rhetorical question with the answer being in the question. The universe is not designed for you to pursue and worship. It's just the place that you live in. People are not designed to know what comes after this life. This is why when, even when you talk, when you try to evangelize non-Christians, they'll say things like, well, no one knows what happens after. No one can know definitively what happens afterwards. And that's true. No one has ever died and and stayed dead for like hundreds of years and come back and say, hey, let me tell you about the last hundred years. No one has ever done that. But only God. God that revealed it in scripture. You've even heard this phrase before, like God knows. We use it in our English uh, vernacular when we say, who knows or nobody knows what the the implication of that is no human can know, but only God knows. This is what Solomon is trying to get here. That there are things that no one can know except for God who is the source of all knowledge. There are things that is only certain because God has said it and revealed it. It shows you us his sovereignty, that he's control over every aspect of a life. Everything about him is worth investing in. Not money, not family, not longevity, not work, and wisdom. All of these things, if you try to build your life with these type of materials, will fail you. The only thing that is worth investing in and and, and acquiring is the fear of the Lord. You need to know him and know that he's the only one that you could depend on in this life. Nothing in this world can provide satisfaction or meaning. Only God can. So you, you can't expect to build anything good in this life if it's disconnected from the Lord. 
You know, after that stadium collapsed, Rome banned the use of using cheap wood when they're building a coliseum. In fact, they made a decree that not only that you can't use cheap materials, but that when you try to build something on a foundation, that needs to be tested before you build anything. Which, you know, in hindsight, it's like so obvious, right? Why would you not test the foundation? Why would you intentionally choose terrible materials? This is what, again, what Psalm is trying to do. He crashed and burned, and he's trying to look back in his life. He's trying to teach you and I today not to build your life with cheap materials and on shaky foundations. There's a reason why Scripture, and in particular Jesus, called himself the true foundation. The ones who build upon sand, they will, the wind and waters will come, and will just wipe it away. But as a wise person, you're considered a wise person if you build it on the solid rock. I trust that if you build your life upon the solid foundation that is in Christ, you will find meaning and purpose, even happiness, as you live through this life. But the first thing that you need to know, that salvation only comes through the Lord. That in order to begin this, having your best life now, it first begins by knowing who Jesus Christ is. Now, what you have to understand it's not your work or your worth or anything about you that gets you into heaven. It's not, you cannot buy your way into heaven. Your family cannot bring you into heaven with them. Your long life in this life will not grant you eternal life. You cannot work your way to heaven, and there's no wisdom that you can come up with or something that, or some sort of philosophy that can get you into heaven. The only thing that you can do to get to the place where you can know God is to know his son. Know and trust that he, Jesus Christ, came into the world on your behalf to live the perfect life that you and I failed to live and died on the cross on our behalf so that we, so that our wickedness and our sin is placed on him and his righteousness given to us. We have nothing to offer the Lord other than our sin. The only thing we do is plead and trust in faith that Jesus Christ has died for us and rose again three days later. That's the hope that we have. That's the only hope that we have. And it's only in that sense, if you live your life with God being the center of everything, that you can slowly begin to live your best life now. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word and reminding us the sobering reality that nothing in this world can satisfy us. All that we have, all that we want to aspire to achieve and obtain in this life is meaningless without you. Lord, we confess that it is very easy for us to be tempted to place our trust in, in work and in family and health and all the things that this earth has to offer. But Lord, we confess that we are nothing without you, that these things truly do not give us lasting satisfaction. I pray for all of us that we have that renewed love for you, that we don't trust in the things that you've given, the material things of this world, but we trust and thank the giver of all good gifts. Lord, be with us now that we live with this conviction so that we don't try to live here uh, knowing that this world is fleeting. This world here is passing away but we do want to maximize the time you've given us and may we be better worshipers because of it. Thank you for this privilege that we have to live and hopefully that we can live for your glory this day. We thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.